I'm on the number two bus, staring out at the sea and the beautiful countryside, on the way to Woodingdean, to the east of Brighton. Storm Kieran is blowing in, but despite this, I'm looking at blue skies. Admittedly, they're constantly at threat of turning grey. I'm walking down the drive of Long Hill School. I thought, what better place to start this special episode than one of the main schools young people from Whitehawk have gone to since the closing of Comart in 2005. I'm a bit apprehensive because over the years we've been running the Class Divide campaign, we've never been invited in for a chat, let alone an interview for our podcast series. I'm also apprehensive because I'm in a school, and as you know, if you've listened to the rest of the series, I didn't have the best experiences at school. In the distance, I can hear the hum of kids playing, moving about the school. Every now and then there's a shout, a laugh, all while the wind continues to howl around me. I'm about to walk into reception, and my mind wanders to the times I spent sitting, waiting in Stanley Deason reception, to be taken into the headmaster's office, to be reprimanded for some misdemeanour. Time was slow back then, those moments felt like eternity. I'm here to meet new head teacher Rochelle Otokoloski, and after signing in and waiting for a bit, I hear my name being called, like a song in the distance. I'm a little bit taken aback by this lovely warm welcome, which we'll come back to a little later in the episode. Before that, I want to rewind a bit to the day before, the 31st of October. So Carly, we are sitting here on a Tuesday afternoon around your kitchen table and we've just had some news. We have. So the exciting thing is that one of the kind of key, I suppose, asks of the Class Divide campaign, which was that Brighton and Hove becomes a more socially inclusive school system, it feels to me like there's been a kind of step forward in terms of progress with that when we've had the papers published for the Children, Young People and Schools Committee, which will be next Monday, where the City Council are proposing to create a new priority category for children on free school meals and the admissions process so that all schools take at least the average amount of children who are entitled to free school meals in the city into their schools, which basically means that for Whitehawk and children across the city potentially on free school meals, that they have more choice of school which is something that we, like I, if I'm honest, actually reading it in black and white, I kind of can't quite believe it still. Mm, I know, well, I think when I first saw it, we weren't together, and I just screen grabbed it and sent it to you in a text. (laughs) I'm like, this is something that we've sort of been calling for for years, really. Yeah, I'm still pinching myself, really, to see it. It's mad. Why is it mad? Brighton and Hove has stark economic inequalities across the city. Some places like Whitehawk sit in the bottom 10% most deprived in the country, with other parts of the city ranked in the top 10% most affluent. We covered this earlier in the series, but in short, the way catchments and admissions are set up, in a pretty unfair way, the so-called family of schools looks more like a dysfunctional family of schools with some having as little as 16% of its cohort on free school meals, and others 46%. It's segregation plain and simple, 
especially when we know the city average is 25%. Don't take my word for it, the Sutton Trust recently released data highlighting the lack of free school meal pupils in the top 500 comprehensives in England. They found they had on average a lower proportion compared to the national average. To be honest, I'm not surprised. Add to this some of the issues we covered in episode 1, the concept of the ideal learner, and how the school system is optimised to support ideal learners, those that fit neatly into the norms, culture and behaviours expected by the system. And later in the series, the national housing crisis, meaning poorer families can't afford to rent or buy where the so-called best-performing schools are. All of that's topped off with a council that hasn't really listened to the needs of communities like Whitehawk for decades. What we've been calling a disaster, Mark Storey, Head of Education Standards and Achievement at Brighton & Hove City Council calls, variations in achievement. He went on to say in the same meeting in March 2023 that I've never been able to sit here before and say that our outcomes for disadvantage and those for SEN are broadly in line with what's going on nationally. It's a factual statement that, and I mentioned that in report, I haven't been able to say that before. You know, I think about what that means. Funnily enough, I did have a think about what this means, after I'd spat out my tea in anger that Mark was suggesting this is a good thing. It's this kind of complacency that inspired me to make this series in the first place, the suggestion that Whitehawk families should think themselves lucky that being broadly in line with national averages for disadvantaged pupils was something to show off about. And all of this at the end of a long line of strategies that we can only presume have failed because, look at the data, it speaks for itself. And the fact that despite asking repeatedly for outcome reports for previous strategies, costing hundreds of thousands of pounds over the years, we've never seen any evidence of success. As I said earlier in the series, Whitehawk has primarily been seen as a problem for services meant to support, rather than an opportunity for the community to thrive. The only opportunity has been for the countless consultants tasked with fixing the disadvantaged. Seems to me like there's something else that needs fixing. I don't think this is any one person's fault though, not schools, heads, teachers, parents, councils. It's a calamity of system failures. This is a collective failure that's going to take a collective response. But we are beginning to see signs of hope. What I'm about to share with you could be the first time something of this scale has happened in this country. It's a small local policy change, but it could change the makeup of schools across the country if the tide turns in a certain direction over the next 12 months. So what is actually happening? At this point in the story, the council are about to vote on whether to spend the next six weeks consulting or letting interested parties get involved in discussions on whether to implement a change to the school admissions code. This change, if it gets through the first vote, the consultation, and then another vote in January, would see free school meal children added to the list of prioritised groups, including looked-after children and compelling medical or other exceptional reasons for attending a school. This means each local authority secondary school will admit at least the citywide average of children eligible for free school meals in 2025 and every year after. For children and families in our community, the ones on free school meals, this will offer meaningful choice to any school of their choosing, in catchment or not, 
As a campaign, we know this is a big change in the right direction in creating a socially inclusive education system in our city. Could you, listener, be a part of that collective, a movement that helps us make Brighton and Hove the fair, progressive city we all want it to be? This programme is hopefully going to give you everything you need to support the Class Divide movement, to create a socially inclusive education system in our city, and maybe even further afield. Please keep all of this in mind as you navigate some of the tricky and uncomfortable things we'll cover in this episode. None of this is easy, but I know tons of kids from some of Brighton and Hove's least advantaged areas that will thank you later by enriching Brighton and Hove in a way we might not have seen before. My name is Ellen Greaves. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the European University Institute. Before that, I did my PhD at the University of Bristol on school choice and school admissions. And I'm currently still working with Professor Simon Burgess at the University of Bristol on a large project studying the effect of different school admissions criteria. We met Ellen back in episode six. I asked her what she thought of this new proposal. It's a really difficult question to say with certainty what the effects might be. But I think it's reasonable to suppose that there could be positive effects for both the existing students at the school and the pupils that are incoming. The ultimate effect of it will depend on how parents' choices change in response to the new probability of access. So it might be that in the past where pupils thought they had no chance of accessing a certain school, they didn't bother to name it. Now when they know they have access to the school, their choices might change. So the ultimate effect will depend on just how many families where the children have free school meals will change their school choices. This reminded me of a tweet someone posted about an unknown, for me, positive consequence of this policy, that people who are eligible for free school meals but don't yet claim them might be inspired to because of what else it unlocks for them, so meaningful choice of schools across the city. It's an interesting decision to have effectively a quota for the percentage of free school meals students. And I would say that it's not like the school is going to change dramatically. So there are many, many examples of schools around the country with 25% of pupils with free school meals and performing exceptionally well in terms of academic results. I do not expect that academic standards at the schools that do change their composition will change dramatically. I think that with the introduction of Progress 8, which is a measure of how much progress pupils make in the school, rather than the grades they come out with at the end. If this is the headline measure, and if this is what schools care about and parents care about, then I see no reason why the effectiveness or the value that the school can add to the pupils will change with a changing composition. On average, of course, looking at absolute attainment, Pupils eligible for free school meals have on average lower attainment. But that's not to say that that's going to be the case for every child with free school meals. And it's not to say that every child without is going to perform exceptionally well. So even thinking about the rural academic attainment of the school, I don't think head teachers should be um, too concerned. And in my view, I would see it as a marker of their excellence if they could take any group of pupils and really improve their educational outcomes relative to where they start from. Framed positively, it's a way for schools to prove, actually, we do deliver excellent teaching 
and we can make a difference to a child's achievement, no matter where they come from. There's lots of research evidence that having a mixed environment in a school is positive, both for educational outcomes, but also for social outcomes, for example, tolerance and pro-social giving and so on. You might remember something ex-Vandine head Andy Schofield told me in episode four. He was speaking about Vandine, one of the so-called better schools in the leafy suburbs of Brighton, supporting young people from Whitehawk in the east of the city, bussing them over for some lessons when Comart, the local Whitehawk school, was in its final years. Vandine had its best ever results. It was top of the league table in Brighton Hove, 70% by to see that year when we had more Comart kids in the school than we've ever had before and we got the best results ever. It generated a real improvement factor at Vandine. Everybody was really together and teaching those kids and bussing them in and making them feel welcome and talking to them like they were human beings and treating them properly. I just wanted to remind you of this because it feels important to say when kids from different backgrounds and areas were learning together, the whole school benefited. In research by Danny Dorling, he highlights how Finland, Norway and Denmark have the least variation in outcomes between their schools who all serve mixed communities. His research suggests that increased diversity in schools doesn't harm middle-class children. In fact, it benefits all students. Other research looks into schools in the United States. Studies show that schools that strive to have racial and economic diversity positively influence students' overall achievement as well as their interest, engagement, critical thinking, communication and problem-solving skills. The day has arrived, it's the 6th of November and I'm watching a live feed of the Brighton and Hove Council Committee meeting, waiting for it to start. This is the meeting in which they'll vote on whether to have a six-week consultation on the free school meal proposal. Carly's actually in the council chamber sending me pictures. As with many council meetings, there can be quite a wait to get to the bit we're most interested in, but I think it's just about to start. As a Labour administration, we're laser-focused on building a system and a city that tackles disadvantage and provides support for those most in need. Nowhere is this more important than in the area of children, families and schools, which this committee has responsibility for. Brighton-Hove is a wonderful city, but it's also an unequal city, including in terms of secondary school outcomes for children from disadvantaged backgrounds. This issue was highlighted brilliantly in the podcast series Class Divide. As a city, we have to start tackling this issue. The committee is today asked to consider a proposal for disadvantaged pupils, i.e. those eligible for free school meals, to be given higher priority in school admissions. I'm going to fast forward a couple of hours so you don't have to sit through the whole meeting and I'll bring us back during the debate and the vote on the free school meal policy. Okay, I'm listening to Richard Barker, head of school organisation, and he's just reading out the proposal. It's just coming to an end, and I think there'll be a number of questions and a bit of debate before the vote. First up, Councillor Jacob Taylor. There is a, a, a problem in this city, not unique to the city, but there is a problem in this city with outcomes for disadvantaged pupils. The truth is that ch- children in certain parts of this city don't get the outcomes and opportunities that other children do from more advantaged backgrounds. Um, and that's something that we really, really want to address um, as a council. This is one measure. This is the starting point in that conversation. There's lots of other things that we will need to consider, but I'm proud that we're bringing it forward today and, and voting on it. 
Okay, various councillors are now speaking in support of the proposal. Here's Councillor Allen. I'll start with the free school meal section. Um, I think what's great about this is that it's it's returning us to the, the true spirit of comprehensive education. And the youth council representatives. I think we kind of know that schools with a high proportion of free school meal students have a greater educational disadvantage. I went to Bakker as my secondary school and I'm now at Basvik. So I see the difference every single day. Um, and I worry that the children coming from free school meal backgrounds into the larger schools, you know, the, the schools maybe aren't equipped to deal with those kind of needs that come along with the free school meals. My sister and me personally, we've been on free school meals and it's we understand the difficulties that that comes with. Um, and I was wondering if there's funding or if there's a process in place to support the schools with that transition and with that influx of educational needs that come with free school meals. This is such a good question for the Young Council rep and really highlights how just changing this policy isn't going to be a magic bullet. And the response in the council chamber was that there'd be support. And that's really good because research by the Sutton Trust maps a picture of lost talent. So children that may be more under-resourced and who are high attainers at primary school are much more likely to do badly when they reach secondary school. Children will also need to feel like they belong. We don't want to end up with a white hawk or free school meal stream in any of the schools. And we want to make sure teachers and schools get the support they need to understand how best to support young people from less advantaged backgrounds. This is something our campaign's already doing, going into schools to run workshops and training. After more questions, we've come to the moment we've been waiting for, the vote. Um, could all those in favour raise their hand? Uh, all those against? And anyone abstaining? Thank you. So that is carried. It might sound like a small thing, but I had tears in my eyes at this point. Carly messaged me from the chamber to say she did too. I don't think I can really put into words the effort that has gone into getting to this point. In a way, it's symbolic, just as much as it is a potential policy change. I've sat watching so many of these meetings over the last few years, hoping something will be said that made me feel like positive change could actually happen. Today is this moment, and I have to thank those that have listened and started to take notice of this small campaign we're running and all the people we represent. But this moment is also the start of a six-week consultation, and we'll need your support, and I'll be sharing how you can do that at the end of the programme. A few days after that vote, I caught up with Whitehawk Ward Councillor David McGregor, who, back in May, at the Class Divide Education Hustings event just before the local elections, was asked this by local parent Jade. In most areas of Brighton Hove, families have two schools in their catchment area to choose from. We have one. Do you think this is unfair and what would you do to change it? So I agree that the catchment areas do need to change. I completely agree. It's completely unfair, but it's a long-term thing. But I think it's a long-term thing that we can definitely work towards. And these proposals for free school meal priority in admissions is definitely a step towards fairness. Before asking David about the policy changes, I wanted to know a bit more about him and how he related to the work we're doing. Everybody was on free school meals when I was in school. And I know that that's sort of a bad thing in the sense that that school then has a lot more issues to deal with. But from a, 
a personal aspect, it, it made it really acceptable. Do you know what I mean? I've grew up thinking that free school meals are a fantastic thing and they're nothing to be ashamed of. And, and if you have got something to say about it, let's let's bloody talk about it. Do you know what I mean? We were all really struggling on the poverty line and just didn't really know it. So David gets it in a way we haven't experienced before with people we've dealt with at the council. He has real-life lived experience of the very challenges we're working to fix. Maybe others do as well, but no one has ever disclosed this to us in this way. It was a real breath of fresh air chatting to David. He went on to talk about why he thought this potential change was important, beyond the core policy proposal of giving priority to free school meal children. So the, the change is basically, for me, sort of tackle a lot of the, the inequality within Brighton and Hove. What it does, I think, is, yes, gives them a greater choice, but also, I think, one of the first times whole family is actually able to talk about education and what they want out of education and really have that discussion rather than, oh, no, that's the school that you go to, and that's just the definite thing that you have to do. When you get pushed away for so long and nobody expects anything of you, you start to live up to those expectations of not, you know, well, you know, it's not, it's not for us, is it? Um, to be able to sit and have that conversation with the family around what is it we want to do, what is it you would do as a, as a kid, and then uh, what do you want from education. I'm massively hopeful that it opens that conversation and opens the opportunities from kids, specifically from Whitehawk, but from also from Bevendine and Hangleton and, and other areas in the city that have been up, underrepresented for a long time. I mean, w- when we first met Curtis, I think I mentioned it, it was genuinely one of the first times that I became politically aware. That's Councillor Jacob Taylor, Deputy Leader of Brighton and Hove Council, Lead for Budget and Finance, and one of the co-chairs of the Children, Family and Schools Committee. Like Councillor David McGregor, he has his eyes on the bigger picture that goes beyond what school you go to. For David, it was about families engaging in conversation about secondary school, and for Jacob, it's about what happens after school. We all have different experiences that make us sort of turn our heads on to to politics and society and mine genuinely was when I left Long Hill and went to Vardine you started to notice that a good chunk of your classmates at Long Hill were not coming with you classmates who'd started in year seven with you at roughly the same level doing well in math or doing okay in English and then just throughout for all of the reasons that have been explored social disadvantage prejudice the way that things worked for them in terms of behaviour at school, et cetera, et cetera, didn't make it onto that next stage to go to college and do academic subjects and then go to university. And so, yeah, definitely when I went to Vardine, just huge numbers of, of people from the, the popular schools in Brighton, but also other schools in Sussex, obviously just came from a background that made it easier to get to that next stage. And it's, it's really sad, right? It's really sad because, you, you know, your friends schoolmates that aren't friends but you just knew and you just knew that they were as clever as you and as clever as absolutely as clever as the kids from Stringer and Vandy just not making it through and that sort of was like a bit of a light bulb moment for me as I started to realise yeah things are not particularly equal in this country and and particularly in this city and I think it is particularly stark in this city partly because of the geography but partly because some of those entrenched privileges and disadvantages that you explored so well in the podcast It's why I'm so committed to pushing this agenda, exploring what policies that we can push from a council perspective to 
make things fairer in the city, but also on the other side of it, what can we do to bring the whole city? Because I think one of the things I said in my first speech as a councillor is that the problem of disadvantage and unequal outcomes is a problem for the whole city, not just two schools, not just councils, but the whole city. And that involves people acknowledging it as a problem, understanding it, and being willing to engage in it and and do stuff. If it takes a city to educate its children, the work we're all doing has to look into every element of society. You could say education is a canary in the coal mine, certainly for Brighton and Hove, and that the socio-economic segregation we've highlighted in the series is everywhere. It's a blind spot for many, and the sooner we start having more conversations about it, the quicker we'll improve a city like Brighton and Hove for people currently marginalised. If you take a, a step back from just schools, I, I want a society not of great extremes and differences of very rich and very poor who don't talk to each other, don't have the same experiences. We want a more equal society. And we also want a society that is more mixed and more balanced, where people from different backgrounds live together, are in the same community, work together, etc., etc. When you have such a unequal and disadvantaged country, you get people getting to the top who actually aren't there on merit. All the while, you've got the exact problem that you've pointed out. There's people that could be doing other things, could be really utilising their talents, but the system currently doesn't let them pass through and get to where they should be. So it's sort of both sides, right? As you say, it should be no life left behind, no person left behind. But on the flip side of that, there's a lot of talent that could be higher up, making better decisions for everybody at every level of society. But education is a good place to start. We think schools work best when they have a good social mix of pupils. And that's not saying that the middle class kids drag up the kids from poor backgrounds. That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is that having a good social mix is good for all children, it's good for staff, it's good for communities. The way schooling in the city works at the moment is there's quite a big disparity in the numbers of people from disadvantaged backgrounds in a couple of particular schools, mainly Backer and Longhill in the east parts of the city, and then some schools in the centre, which is no criticism of them as schools, but the truth is they have a much lower number of children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Obviously, the end goal is to get much better outcomes for pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds, whatever school they go to. But on the path to that, we're now exploring, are there ways to make our schools a little bit more balanced and have more of a social mix? As I said at the start of the programme, this policy change would be the first time any council has done something like this in this country. Some schools have put in priorities for free school meals children, but never a whole local authority. But in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a policy just like this has been in place since 2001. Every school in the 6,700 student district has to reflect the area's socio-economic mix. Jeffrey Young, a professor at Columbia University's Teacher College and former superintendent in Cambridge said, It's only when social justice and academic excellence are married that a school or district has the right to stake a claim to be successful or excellent. He went on to say, There's a difference between teaching about social justice and acting in socially just ways. As well as his roles at the council, as an ex-Longhill school pupil, Jacob Taylor now finds himself as a governor and has recently been involved in recruiting a new head teacher. It's clear to me that she kind of gets it. She understands what 
needs to happen to improve Long Hill and take it on that journey and engage your parents, engage with community, engage with you guys to build a, you know, a great name and a great reputation for Long Hill. Cause I'm completely committed to improving Long Hill and it's on a, a journey now to improve its outcomes, improve its behavior, improve its culture. We talked about our free school meal policy and that's one element. Another major element is to absolutely support through our arms around and build Long Hill and Backer and make those great schools that attract people from other parts of the city and even other parts of the county that might want to come to a, a great, vibrant, progressive school. And yeah, and I know that's what Rochelle is working towards and I think she's going to be great. So let's rewind to where we started this episode, in the reception of Longhill, where the head teacher Jacob was just talking about, Rochelle Otokoloski, welcomes me. I think my background as a teacher is exactly the same as my principles as a leader. So as a classroom teacher, I insist that everyone has everything they need to succeed, no matter what their background or their starting point academically. And that has then morphed into exactly the same value as a head teacher. Everybody who walks in at the gate should have everything they need. If somebody needs some uniform, some equipment, some breakfast, anything like that, we will give them everything that they need to succeed. So I think it's about, for me, having high expectations of all learners, no matter what their backgrounds or starting points, and making sure that everybody has a chance to succeed. Maybe there's something in Rochelle's life that enables her to really connect to fixing these inequality issues in education. My personal background was that I went to an all-girls private school, which my sister didn't go to. I think we've heard a story like this already in the series. I was very fortunate that I did go to it and very quickly realised that my friendship group was made up of students who were there on scholarships and students who weren't lucky enough to be able to afford that sort of education. And a lot of our peers treated them ever so slightly differently. The teachers treated them ever so slightly differently. And inevitably, at the end of sick form, some students, although they could have gone to university, didn't. And I suppose, in hindsight, looking back at that, I assumed it was through choice. But actually, that was quite a naive thing for me to assume because some of them simply couldn't afford it. After university, Rochelle spent some time working in a youth court supporting young offenders. And it made her wonder where she might have more impact. So she ventured upstream and became an English teacher. Working in London which was where I worked just before I came here for 10 years, I realised how fortunate children in London are compared to some other parts of the country. The deprivation is very high, and certainly still is where I worked. Levels of crime, murder rates, very high, much higher than where I work now. But the opportunities are better. They don't have to pay to go to school. There are lots of funding projects and lots of big companies that want to sponsor London schools. So for me, coming here is enabling me to have a much bigger impact, more significant impact on a community that I think needs it more than somewhere like London because I can help more people get ahead in life and that's where I come from. We're sitting here today on the week where the council have basically announced proposals to to make some changes that... I guess as a campaign we feel will make the school system in Brighton Hove a little bit fairer. I'm interested in your thinking around what 
a truly inclusive school system means to your work in this school, but also the education of kids across the city? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to say that everybody who works in education believes in inclusive education because why on earth wouldn't you? And why else would you be working in education? But for me, that's a no-brainer. That's, that's why I'm here. I think changes to the admissions that enable students to have more choice and enable families to have more choice is fantastic. That's something I'm really, really excited about. I know that other local schools are excited about it. And I think that from my point of view, it's not something I'm afraid of because I know that a lot of my parents will still choose Long Hill. Um, they've had a lot of siblings who go here. The relationships with some of the families are so strong and they believe that we will look after their child, that they will send their child here. But I love the fact that finally there's a chance for some families to have a choice who previously didn't purely because of where they lie their head at night, which is ridiculous to me. And Rochelle gets the long-term benefits of the proposed changes. I think that presently, because there is segregation as such going on, we aren't preparing our young people for real life. And therefore, we are continuing the cycle of narrowing opportunities, narrowing jobs, or oh, I wouldn't go and work there because those people work there. And I've never mixed with those people, whether that's a conscious or a subconscious thought, that is what we are guiding students towards. And that, again, is the opposite of why we're in education. I think that it will be a real bonus for schools who don't have high numbers of students who are in receipt of free school meals. I think they will definitely benefit from these proposed changes um, more than perhaps I will because we work so closely with families who live in some poverty already and we know the joy that those children bring to us and the cultural mix that they bring to our school and the communities it enables me to have contact with are so beneficial. So I think the other schools are very lucky that they will have that. The negatives of the segregation that we currently have, obviously, are the impact on students' self-esteem, the impact on their outcomes as a result of that self-esteem, the ongoing cycle and the repetition to families who, who live, I don't want to use the word disadvantage because I'm not personally a fan of it, but who live a more disadvantaged lifestyle through no choice of their own, is that because that cycle continues, those families then would not be as encouraging of their children to go and succeed at school because they would never have seen that themselves. And, and so it continues and the segregation therefore continues and yeah, the, the impact on the local community is, is significant and I, anything that we can do to, to crack that or make a dent in it, I think it would be amazing. Rochelle is one of many who've dedicated their lives to public service, like other leaders in education in Brighton and Hove, and I'm confident they'll also see the game-changing nature of the proposal for the less advantaged children in our city. It's very hard to see why anyone wouldn't want to lessen segregation and improve life chances. One of the things I worry will harm the chances of the new admissions proposal being voted through is the negative perceptions of communities like Whitehawk. I wondered what Rochelle's view on this was, seeing as she's only been in town for a few months. It was quite shocking to me when I came here to, to learn of that, and I refer to it in slightly stronger terms as the demonisation of a community. I was 
you know, told, oh, those people live there. Do you know what that place is like? I would meet people out locally in Brighton and tell them where I worked. And they'd say, oh, gosh, that's tough because you work with those children, don't you? It was a real, real shock to me. And as I said, having lived and worked in London um, on and around places that not only have poverty, but have real, real crime entrenched in council estates where it are genuinely quite dangerous places to live. When I went into, for example, the Whitehawk estate and I went into the primary school and to the crew club and various places, I kept thinking, when is someone going to show me where these demons live? Because I haven't found any. I don't understand what, what these people look like in other people's heads. And I think it's that classic thing that someone's created a monster in their own head and that's where the stigma has grown from. And how awful that more people aren't trying to help destroy that. I asked her what she'd say to parents who were concerned about their kids ending up at the school. I've had many of these conversations already. So I've been into six of our primary feeder schools um, once or twice and had conversations with parents. I've had parents approach me and tell me in no uncertain terms, in some quite foul language, what they think of my school um, in the playground with their children. So I've had those conversations and my response to them is that, you know, my school might not be for everyone. It might not have the best exam results in the local area, which it doesn't at the moment but it will. And anyone who would be sending their child here in September is going to be getting in early on a great opportunity because we are going to be the best school in Brighton in a few years' time. And so what I usually do is I invite them to come in and look around the school. So we've had quite a lot of parents, probably about 60 parents, who've come in during the school day and looked around our school when it's in action. And they all say, one way or another... I'm really shocked. I didn't know it would be like this. Or as one set of parents said, gosh, it's like a normal school. And that's because there has been a stigma attached to our school. For me, our children and our school in action is the best advertisement for our school. My concern is my children and wanting the best for my children. And my children are whoever gets to walk through the door and whoever gets to make the choice to come here. And I don't mind who they are or what they look like or where they come from, I will care for them all. And, and that's the most important thing to me, those children, those families. The education system is the, the, the biggest single driver of creating the sort of society that we want to see. Do we want to see a fair and more equal society where everybody has opportunities? Well, in that case, we need a fully comprehensive system, which we haven't got. Um, and for every young person to be able to fulfil themselves in the way that they feel is best and right for them. Of course we want what Fiona Miller is talking about. Who can really argue with that? So why has it been so hard to make something like the proposed changes happen? Why are we even consulting on the issue? Ellen Greaves. They are difficult conversations and I think what's difficult to consider in those circumstances for the parents affected is about the definition of fairness from another person's perspective. Because on one hand, if you live in the catchment area and you feel like something's being taken away then that feels very unfair but on the other hand if you live 
currently outside the catchment area, then that equally feels very unfair that you have no chance of access. So it is a very difficult conversation to have, but I think it it would be great if, as part of the consultation, parents, the community could come together and think about what it means to have a successful school system for all children in the city, not just for your own children. Councillor Jacob Taylor. What I would say is, you know, I went to Long Hill. I mean, some people would talk about Whitehawk and yeah, as you've explored in your podcast, is like it has historically had a bad name and like everyone gets that. But reality is in the school, you don't know exactly which kids went to Whitehall. They're just kids, they're just your friends, they're just people you rub along with and play sport with and are in lessons with. Um, and it's absolutely not something to be feared, it's something to be embraced. And I know people um, who live in Hove in the centre of town who do attend Long Hill and Backer for, for different reasons. Backer, great sports facilities, Long Hill in a beautiful setting surrounded by trees and knit near the sea and near Rottingdean and, and, and lots of space along here, lots of space. So there's great positive reasons why those schools um, attract pupils from different parts of the city already. And I think that's something that we want to grow. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, there's nothing to fear for parents in the centre of town for having a better social mix at school. It's to be embraced. It's to benefit of their children and society and the city. You know, you have to think about the kind of society we want to aspire for, right? Which is one that is more equal, less divided, less segregated between different backgrounds. This is going to involve a collective effort and possibly some hard decisions. We heard a lot in the podcast series about how the pointy-elbowed middle-class parents use their power and privilege to get their children into the best schools at the cost of poorer children in the city. What if they didn't? What if they, you, took a leaf out of the Scandinavian book, which we also admire from afar, but just aren't quite able to follow when it comes to our own children? We just want the best for them. But if we want a fairer city, a fairer world, parents have to be a little bit more like Sarah. Her son didn't get into Vandine, his first choice, but got a place at Backer, an academy with the highest free school meal percentages in the city. Yes, she had some worries, but since her son started at Backer, she got involved to help and improve it. Her son's happy. She's building the community, the city we want. Listen to her story and follow her inspirational lead. Backer was our second choice. So we chose Vandeen first and Backer second. And basically, my take is what the council says, that all the secondary schools in Brighton are good. And so it shouldn't matter where you send your kid. And we went and looked at all of the schools and I let decide which ones he liked and didn't like. And then I used that to kind of inform my decisions. And he liked Vandine best. He had lots of friends who were already there. And so we put that as our first choice. We put Backer as our second choice because that was the school he liked second best. And although the schools are kind of considered to be good schools or bad schools based on how kids do academically and stuff like that. I felt that all the schools were probably going to be good enough schools for my son and what he needed from his education. And so I think he'll do as well at Backer as he would have done at either of the catchment schools. Sarah talked about the catchment setup, echoing a lot of what I shared in episode six, that they're unfair and defined by those that have shouted the loudest and dominate the so-called best schools in Brighton. 
She mentioned the council pandering to parents in the central catchments, you know, because politics is a popularity contest, and also pandering to those central catchment schools, allowing them to create what are known as bulge classes, squeezing as many pupils as possible into them. But why is this a bad thing? Because schools get money based on bums on seats. Those schools have got more money because they've squeezed those kids in. Whereas schools out of catchment that otherwise would have benefited from having the oversubscription kids go to their schools, they're losing the money of not having a full classroom. So they might have less teachers because they don't have the money by the extra 30 kids maybe who would have gone to that school because of the oversubscription. This is the dysfunction I mentioned in the introduction, and I'm not completely blaming schools for this. They have to exist in a system that's designed around a market. And this, to me, looks like market forces dominating, but in a really harmful way. It's probably important to say the politics of all of this have been complicated over the past two decades, with no party in Brighton and Hove having a majority. It's been very difficult to make important changes over this period, but that's a completely other podcast series. Back to Sarah. I asked her about the fears many parents have at this point in their child's life, and her answer hints at something I've already mentioned, and I feel is part of the solution. I wasn't worried about Backer until just after all the choices were announced. They did get a pretty poor Ofsted rating. And at that point, I was like, uh-oh, have I really made the right decision here? Is that the right school? I spent a lot of time going to the school, meeting the new head teacher, listening to what they had to say about what the results of the Ofsted meant, what they were doing to turn things around. And basically, they convinced me I believed them. And I've kind of been quite involved in the school since because I wanted to make sure it is the right place. And I'm totally happy with everything that I've seen there. That's really, really good to hear. And I I think that last thing you just said about you being involved with the school, I sort of see this policy change as being a sort of act of collectivism rather than individualism. You know, I say in 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 the podcast, it takes a city to educate its children. I'd love to see more of what I think you're doing here, which is saying, right, my son's going to the school, it's had uh, maybe a bit of bad times, but maybe we should all be supporting it. Maybe it should be partly our responsibility to help with some of that stuff. I mean, I really hope the city embraces that. It feels like if if it's going to happen anywhere, it should happen in a place, place like Brighton. We heard how Sarah's son was happy at school, Let's find out a bit more. My son's doing absolutely fine. He's very shy and I think he would have struggled whatever school he went to because of his shyness. He's over a year in and that's lessening, so he's getting used to it. He's no longer, big children, what's going on here? I asked Sarah what she would say to parents worrying about choosing a secondary school. My son came home and said that he'd been talking to someone who said that all of the year sixes this year loved Backer and they thought it was great. And so the kids, when they go and look around schools, they don't have that higher level of what's the best school, which school should I go to? They're just looking at where they'd like to go and learn. And on the whole, it looks like at the open days, at least, they all seem to, or a lot of them seem to think that Backer seems like quite a cool place to go. And having got a son who's there, I'd say, yep, it is. And every time I've been in the school, it seemed really friendly and nice. And I catch the school bus with all the kids in the morning and there's a bunch of friendly kids or at least 
polite, well-behaved on the whole. So I wouldn't hesitate to tell people not to worry and that they're going to be going to a good school. And as far as I can see from an academic perspective, if the kids go to school, their grades are up there with the best schools. So I don't think academically there's anything to worry about either. Rather than focusing just on Ofsted reports, grades, league tables or Progress 8, maybe a priority measurement parents of Brighton and Hove kids should be worried about is how inclusive the school is, how representative of the city of Brighton and Hove it is, and how that can translate into fixing our segregated and broken society. I said at the start of the series and this episode, some of these topics are tricky, difficult to talk about, and call for us all to work together. I really believe Brighton and Hove is full of good people, the kind of people that want to do the right things for its future. I also believe people in Brighton and Hove know deep down that giving meaningful choice to a whole load of families who have been cut off from that choice through no fault of their own is the right thing to do. For those living in the central catchment that might feel like they're having something taken away from them, I can't promise, but I have a hunch your kids will be fine just like Sarah's son and countless others who find themselves in her situation. As research shows, children are not held back by mixing with a wide range of peers. And this is vital, because the true success of this policy change won't be a whole load of people deserting certain schools. Success will see the quality and outcomes of all schools raising up, something we know is achievable, but only if we work together to support the education of all of our young people. We need to care more for the children and young people in our country where the rates of poverty are higher than they've ever been. I want every child to feel society cares about them, that we want the best for them, and not just our own children, our own tribes. Let's not fall into blaming parents and young people for doing badly at school. We must fix the system that fails so many of them, and we can only do that together. We need you to shout the loudest to support the proposals, to send a love letter to a place behind the hills and in the hollows of East Brighton. Let's embrace education for the whole city, its young people, and give them the education they deserve. The best way you can help right now is by taking part in the consultation. It's super easy, and we have a full guide on the Class Divide website. But next thing, talk to friends, have those difficult conversations about diversity and getting rid of segregation. You can also consider how you might support education in other ways in the city. We're always looking for volunteers and donations. But most importantly, make your voice heard for all of the young people in Brighton and Hove. Head to classdivide.co.uk and click on Support the Movement. Everything you need to support is on the website. Class Divide was written and produced by me, Curtis James. The executive producer is Eve Streeter. Fact-checking and additional writing by Carly Goldsmith and research by Sarah Bragg. Music in this episode was kindly donated by Olivier Aleri, Salvatore Mercatanti, Benjamin Harrison, Trams, Shida Shahibi, Polly Paws, Max de Wardner, Clarice Jensen, Toy Drum, and the official body.